You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 12th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show, done deal, sort of, Democrats and Republicans reach an agreement on funding the US-Mexican border wall that avoids a partial government shutdown. But will Donald Trump sign it off? Then... Every time somebody votes against a deal, the risk of no deal increases. And... The Right Honourable Gentleman talked about acting in the national interest. Yes, we should be acting in the national interest, and the national interest is in getting a deal agreed with this Parliament. Uh, Is that true? Are Britain's politicians using the Brexit crisis to resolve their own party differences at the expense of the nation? My guests Michael Goldfarb and Lance Price will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including after a Donald Trump supporter attacks a BBC television cameraman at a campaign rally, is it time for the world's politicians to wind down the anti-media rhetoric? All that plus... Italy's Deputy Prime Minister gives the thumbs down to the country's Eurovision Song Contest entry. Is Matteo Salvini just tone deaf, or does he have a problem with a singer called Mahmoud? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Michael Goldfarb, a veteran journalist and broadcaster, and Lance Price. Lance is a political commentator. He's also author of four books, including Where Power Lies. He's also a former special advisor to Prime Minister Tony Blair and also a former news correspondent for TV. I remember your reports very well. (laughs) (laughs) You must have a very long memory. (laughs) I do indeed. But gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the programme. Now, in a rare moment of bipartisanship, Democrats and Republicans put aside their differences to reach an agreement in principle over funding the border wall between Mexico and the United States. Instead of the $5.7 billion demanded by President Donald Trump, they proposed he should be given $1.375 billion. If the deal is approved, federal agencies that were recently closed in a partial government shutdown will have their funding continued. The question now is whether Mr Trump will sign the deal, given his previous threats to call a national emergency if he didn't get all his wall money. So Michael Gold has Trump been finally checkmated or will reality now force him to greenlight the deal or am I being stupidly optimistic? I think, you, you, <laughs> you know, it all depends on how you define reality. And clearly Donald Trump defines it in his own particular way, which is, of course, for lesser people who don't have a billion dollars in the bank, a ticket to a rubber room and, and needles full of psychotropic drugs. I, you know, he'll spin it out as, uh, we're not sure, first of all. He said today after this, um, tentative agreement was reached between Republicans and Democrats in both houses of Congress that um, he wasn't sure whether he would sign it off. Now, he's already paid, insofar as he's made to pay a price, a political price for the first shutdown, which lasted more than a month and saw his ratings begin to really go down. He's got a core group of about 35% of the electorate that will stay with him no matter what he does. Um and he's about down to that. I mean, people are, are fed up with it. I think that um, 
it's not clear, you know, this is all tinkering at the edges. There's still a billion plus dollars for some kind of, you know, I don't know, something you get at Ikea, you know, you some slats you can put up along in the desert. Um, and I hope we can actually come back after I've finished yakking and Lance has finished yakking <laughs> to talk a bit about, about the border because I've, I've done a lot of reporting from the border and I was there in October and it's worth telling listeners what it's really like. Anyway, Trump will probably, my guess is, sign off on this. He doesn't want another shutdown. It's bad for him politically. And, you know, in the end, it's all limbo. I mean, this wall, this mighty wall will not get built. But it's an issue that is live for him and that 35%, and he can keep coming back and visiting it. And I think that actually suits him down to the ground. Mm. But I guess, Lance, just picking up on this point about the, the chances that he might actually be forced to do it grudgingly, is that logic dictates he should sign the deal. But having said that, he's come from El Paso. He's been preening himself in front of his base. He's feeling pretty pumped up on a lot of adrenaline. He's also quite volatile. So that might actually persuade him to dig his heels in just uh, for, for the sake of it, I guess. And he hasn't really got all that he wanted, the 5.7. No, indeed. Um, I mean, Michael's much better qualified to answer that question than, than me. But looking at it from the outside, uh, it seems to me that it's not really about a wall at all. It's about um, uh, uh, Donald Trump and his political base. Um, and it's about a dividing line with the Democrats. Uh, and uh, he feels, I'm sure, that it worked for him in the last presidential election. Uh, and it won't trouble him in the slightest, as far as I can see. If the wall hasn't been built come the 2020 election, he'd be delighted for it to be an issue again, because it's a very stark dividing line in which he can stand there and say that he's defending uh, national security, uh, he's protecting the border against... Uh, as he describes them, um, you know, criminals and terrorists and rapists and whoever. Mm. Some of whom come from the Middle East, according to Donald Trump's uh, description of some of these individuals. Yeah, they obviously got a little bit lost on the way, but yes. Um, uh, and, um, and he's, you know, the Democrats have allowed themselves to be put into a position where, where they are uh, on the defensive in a sense of uh, the classic sort of left-right liberal um, uh, right-wing divide. Uh, Trump may feel that he's got the Democrats where he wants them. I think there's some short-term political benefits that the Democrats have obviously gained from it. But when it comes to a black-and-white, horrible, horrible uh, presidential election campaign, which I think we can predict in 2020, then I, 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 I suspect that Trump will be happy to have the wall unbuilt. Well, as Elizabeth Warren said yesterday, it's not entirely clear that Donald Trump will be available to suit up for duty in 2020. <laughs> he may be suiting up in an orange jumpsuit. I think that's being optimistic, but he may actually be pinned down in court by then. No, I think that, that, that he sees this, and I, I'm actually, my guess is Republican strategists see this as, yes, it's a stark difference. You know, we there is there are votes in the naked racist ploy. But it's a very short-term ploy. I mean, just to come back to, to you know, the border, the border region with Mexico, um, which was only officially settled, I mean, the final bits of the border weren't settled till like 1964 when Lyndon Johnson was president. There was still an island in, in the Rio Grande, um, not far from El Paso, that needed to be, it needed to be decided who's, who's got this island. Um, it's always been a very mixed and, and it's been predominantly Hispanic. Even now, the Republicans shoot themselves in the in both feet with you know uh, a, a sawed-off shotgun because you know the, the 
the core vote for the Republican Party are small businessmen. So on. If you mm. drive along the border, most of the small businesses are owned by people of Mexican ancestry. Some of them have been in the U.S. for four or five generations. Some of them have only been, you know, came over illegally and have established businesses, and their children are the true legal residents. Um, and it's based on um, a great deal of racism. And the thing is that it is mostly empty. It's an it's a America's empty quarter. I drove for BBC World Service, Lance, uh, 20 years ago from Yuma, Arizona, on the border, all the way to El Paso, staying close to the border, as close as I could, except where it's military land, through some of the most inhospitable territory in North America. There's nothing there. No one comes through there. The idea that you're going to build a wall there is insane. And yet it becomes part of this thing. We're going to keep the hordes away. And, you know, during the midterm election, there was a thousand people marching up mm, from Central America. Caravan. Who, were, who were they? Where did they go to? I'm still convinced that they were drummed up possibly by, you know, some <laughs> black op, you know, trying try to, to give the Republicans some kind of uh, headlines. It's, it's a mad situation. Um, and it's strictly for electoral mm. um, And what we're talking about here, of course, is the optics. And look, we, we know what happened when um, Trump had to capitulate, even though he denied that he was, he was giving in when the government departments were restarted. But it, it does appear that he was stung very badly or took it very personally when you had right-wing commentators who criticised him for this decision. Now, look... Sean Hannity of Fox News, again, one of his biggest, Trump's biggest admirers, he's actually condemned this agreement, even though it hasn't officially come out into the wash, so to speak. But what I'm getting at is how much of a hold does the right wing, the media, the commentators, the people who, who Trump really listens to, how much sway will they have over his thinking on this? Well, he can't afford to lose them. Obviously, he needs to retain that part of the base because without and, and that part of the um, media support, if you can call it that, that he's got to, at the moment because he's not going to garner any more uh, to his left. So he's only got the right to play to. Uh, and that is uh, his electorate. So, uh, you know, he will be concerned about that, but he'll also have to weigh that up against um, the damage that it does to his reputation and to his ratings when, for example, the shutdown it becomes uh, such an issue uh, as it as it did, and the State of the Union address having to be postponed by a week uh, as a result of it. Um, and I think then, when people, when 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 voters are asked to weigh up um, uh, the position that he takes, which he will continue to portray as being the strong man um, uh, standing up for uh, middle class mm. Americans and the uh, little guy, and, and yeah. Um, weigh that up against um, the reputation for competence, of course, which every president needs. And if he's seen not to be doing his job, then that, I think, will damage him in, uh, uh, outside that 35%, the extra 15% or whatever it is mm. he needs to get. OK, let's move on now to another subject that we want to look at. And this is, of course, it is Brexit. You can't get away from it, really. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has been updating Parliament on her Brexit negotiations. She called on MPs to give her more time to push Brussels into agreeing her withdrawal deal, whilst urging them to hold their nerve. Yet as the March the 29th deadline for Britain's EU exit draws closer, the political landscape has become ever more fractured. Talk of an early general election has been ratcheted up, along with rumours of a break away political party, all of which begs the question, what is the point of Brexit? Is it about doing what's best for the country or perhaps using one of the most important issues in a generation to settle political scores? 
Lance, I don't really know if, if it's fair to say that you've been stuck with the Brexit story <laughs> or whether you've actually chosen it voluntarily, in which case you're very brave. But look, I mean, is, is, is it fair to say that Britain's political parties are perhaps using Brexit to settle their own internal differences? And is it happening at the expense of the, of the country? Because like it or not, raw, hardcore politics is coming into this in a way which perhaps is rather unsettling. Yeah, I wouldn't describe it exactly like that. What I would say is that Brexit and the result of the referendum, which the main political parties weren't expecting, has exposed fissures within both of the main parties that have always been there, but which the leaders of those parties have been able to suppress and control and contain uh, in order to keep the coalition together. Uh, and they have to keep that co- their, their respective coalitions together because the electoral system that we have punishes divided parties um, and makes it very difficult for new groupings of the kind that you alluded to to come through. But those divisions within the parties are now exposed as never before um, uh, over over Brexit. Uh, And the real risk of one or both of the two main parties, the Conservatives and Labour, splintering is is there. And the party leaders are staring that in the face. So when they make decisions about what their next tactical move should be over um, Brexit, and it is all tactics, there's no strategy to it at all that I can see on either side, um, then they are being warned Um, by their uh, party managers, uh, both of them, that if they take a step in the wrong direction, it could lead to a split in the party. So you could easily have a situation whereby, let's say, for example, Theresa May were to move towards Labour's position on Brexit, which she could easily do, and she could then have a majority in the House of Commons. Instead of being defeated by 230 votes, she could win by 230 votes, but she'd be dependent on Labour votes. That would split her party because her right-wing loonies would go off and uh, either split or, or make life as difficult for her as they could within the party. The same happens on the other side, on the Labour side. Mm. If uh, Jeremy Corbyn is seen to facilitate Brexit, then there are a quite substantial group of uh, pro-European Labour people who are on the point already of mm. moving away. OK, but let's take this point of, of perception, Michael, because as, as Lance pointed out, look, a lot of these divisions had already been there. And whilst Euroscepticism was behind the hill, it wasn't really a matter. Those individuals were confined to a fringe, but now they're at the centre. But how is it perceived by outsiders looking in? Outsiders like non, me, yeah, you like, mean non-parliamentarians the, no, or international or in, people international. living in the U, in, in the US or in or in Holland. Actually, well, what is the the, the US view? They think everybody thinks they're crazy, <laughs> except for Steve Bannon, who is you know trot, trots around the world having lots of dinners with really odious people and encouraging them to be um, ethno-nationalists. You know die in the ditch types and we'll come on to Matteo Salvini later in the program over (laughs) Eurovision Song Contest but look you know I'm listening to Lance and and I'm thinking you know this is the nation this is the society and it's these petty petty awful awful career decisions that MPs are, are making. You know, about two months ago, you could come into the, we could come into the studio and be talking about second referendum, you know, and, and there was, you could tell that on the Tory side and on the Labour side, there were prominent parliamentarians who were openly talking about the need to go back to the people and having a people's vote. Where are they today? Mm. What risk is Hillary Benn, prominent Labour MP, taking with his career to stand up and say, look, 
this is just not working now, and we've got under 50 days to get uh, get something through on Brexit. And, uh, and where is um, Amber Rudd in and out of the cabinet? But where is Amber Rudd to say, look, you know, this is a resigning matter for me. You're not doing this right. We are completely left adrift while these things go on. And, and now, and, and what happens in the vacuum? I, yesterday, I was doing some punditry. Somebody said, June, I hear there's going to be a, a general election in June. I said, really? Really? Are you sure? Um, today, it's been brought forward to May. And I say, really? Where is this coming from? These are all rumors that come out of Westminster. Don't you understand that I think it's 48 days today. I think it's 48 days mm-hmm. till, till Brexit day. You know, let's not worry about what happens next. Let's worry about either A, uh, extending Article 50, which is, I still think, the most likely outcome, or B, figuring out how we're going to, you know, get enough blue paper <laughs> if we crash <laughs> Or whether we'll actually be able to keep the lights going. But, you know, there is there is a much bigger question as well, apart from whether we think that politicians are acting in their own self-interest or that of the, of, the, of the country. It's what this does to British politics in the future, because one of the biggest enemies of governments when there are elections is voter turnout, voter apathy. And given the way that the parties have conducted themselves over this, it really does beg the question, well, what is the point in voting for these people? Because the calibre of MPs that we have, perhaps with one or two notable exceptions, is pretty poor if we judge them on how they've handled the Brexit negotiations. I think the whole process has done real damage to the reputation of British politics. Of course it has. And whether that's people looking in from outside who used to look on Britain and say they might disagree with decisions that British governments took, but actually we were pretty good at governing ourselves and we were pretty competent um, and we were pretty sensible and we looked after British interests globally. The fact that the British government is now uh, set on a course and has been for more than two years, which it knows itself will weaken Britain both economically and uh, in terms of its influence in the world. But Although wh- nobody's really admitted that as such, have they? Well, you know, if you look at the if you look at the forecasts, if you look at the forecasts, uh, the official government forecasts that have come out, they all say that we're going to be a poorer country yeah, but, but as a that, result but, of. But, but that's as the a, point, though, isn't it? Is the fact that even though their own departments are saying, "Look, this is but, going to harm the country," there is a denial on this. But to be fair to them, for a second, to the politicians <laughs> that we have, and I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, uh, disagree with your view that we have a pretty second-rate, if not third-rate, bunch at the moment compared to what we may have had in the past. Although you shouldn't actually hold up too many past generations as, as, as uh, uh, magnificent. But anyway, um, what I would say is you do have the referendum result. Now, the referendum took place only in order to solve the division problem in the Conservative Party. So that is why we had a referendum in the first place. But given that the people were given the opportunity to express a view and did express a view, then I, I, I don't think it's unprincipled of the government to seek to put that into practice. Um, But they should be prepared to allow the public to look at the consequences. Now we know the detail of it. Now we know exactly, or we don't know exactly, but we know a bit better what what Britain's future outside the European Union would look like, uh, to, to, to give them another opportunity to express an opinion on it. But I would also say that those people who I profoundly disagree with uh, on the far right of the um, Conservative Party, they're not just doing it out of self-interest. They genuinely believe what they say. Uh, and the but, moderates do as well. They're just, but, the, but the parliamentary arithmetic makes it very hard for any of them to... Just one last quick point is to say that what, what's been interesting is that this has been a process that's been going on in the Conservative Party since Margaret Thatcher was overthrown on this I- issue, among others. But this was the, the, the 
sufficient condition to, to have her removed from office. But what it's done is it has exposed the, the Labour Party. And and it's very clear that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's whole thing has been, well, I want to get a general election because two years ago at the general election, Labour had an unexpectedly good showing. But the fact that Corbyn has embraced Brexit now in such a way, all of the current opinion polling shows that if there is a general election come May or June, if that rumor has any credibility, it's Labour that will pay the price and the Tories may well end up with an actual majority. Not a big majority, but an actual majority. OK, well, let's move on. My guests, of course, are Michael Goldfarb and Lance Price because a supporter of the US President Donald Trump has attacked a BBC cameraman at a campaign rally in El Paso, Texas. A man wearing a Make America Great Again cap pushed and swore at Ron Skeens and other news crews before being pulled away. Now, it's not the first time the press has had to deal with hostility from Mr. Trump's supporters. In the past, and very recently, in fact, Mr. Trump has described the media as being enemies of the people and peddlers of fake news. Critics fear that if he doesn't tone down the rhetoric, these confrontations can actually get much worse. And in fairness, Michael Goldfarb, Mr. Trump isn't the only one who, if you want to to put it bluntly, has it in for the press. You've got the likes of Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey. You've also got Viktor Orban in Hungary. The list is endless. He may head up that list, but he's part of um, a rather elite crew, elite for all the wrong reasons, of course. Yeah, well, there's no comparison. I mean, Erdogan doesn't doesn't wait for the crowd to act. He just puts them in prison. He puts more, yeah, there are more journalists in Turkish prisons than any other country um, in the world, I, I think. Um, I don't know about Orban's record. What he does is he simply buys up the press mm. and then hands it to his cronies, and they just fire all the journalists who might um, report matters that don't reflect well mm. on Viktor uh, Orban. And that's the point. You don't get an objective press. You're fed an official government it's, Exactly. Line. Whereas in, in America, it, it is quite dangerous. And, and, and it is also actually ugly. I, I, when I read about the BBC cameraman being roughed up this morning, one, I was... A, actually surprised that it doesn't happen more often because things really do get ugly at those rallies. And it reminded me of something that happened to me. In 1998, I was covering the good the referendum process for the Good Friday Agreement, ratification process. And I went to Ballymena in Northern Ireland and Ian Paisley, who was against the Good Friday Agreement, was holding a rally in, in an auditorium. It wasn't probably about 1,500 people. And he started the rally with about five minutes diatribe against the foreign press, you know, the press. They lie about us. We, the good people of... I mean, his usual thing, there was no mixing board at this rally. So I had to literally stand in front of Ian Paisley with my arm up in the air and, and my microphone attached. I work in radio. And he really worked the crowd up. And, it, and, he, and a guy in the front row actually said, and in a way that I wasn't frightened, but he did sound like he mean it, kill them kill them all. And Paisley heard it. I know he did because he then chilled the crowd out. Hmm. A guy like Trump, who is without doubt a skilled at demagoguery, at least for his base, they buy into his performance, is capable of bringing 8,000 people to a frenzy of hatred. And this is what he does with the press. And that's why I say I'm sort of surprised I mean, that it hasn't happened more often. It's not the first time it's happened, by the way. But it, it is a dreadful thing, and it's a dangerous thing, because a mob, 
mean, I'm sure Lance has been in, in some mob scenes as well. They're pretty bloody ugly. Mm. It, can, it can get very brutal. And I mean, that's, that's, that was the experience that you went through in Northern Ireland. We've seen, of course, what, 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 what happens at a Trump rally. And yet, and yet the United Kingdom, Lance, does seem pretty tame by comparison because you, you tend to have politicians criticising the BBC regardless of their political persuasions. They've all had, they've all had some criticism to make. But the, the general perception is that the, the printed press in the United Kingdom tends to be very conservative leaning but again perhaps not as rabid shall we say in pushing a line some some would argue as, as um its counterparts elsewhere in the world yeah i mean that's a it's a bit of a generalization obviously but i don't think we should be too complacent about the situation in the united kingdom either and the fact is that populism breeds this kind of hostility towards the media wherever it uh, arises um and um you know brexit that we've been discussing is in its has opened um the way in britain to a kind of populism on the streets that we haven't seen for a long time so we've had a situation and it's not just on the right i mean we we've had a situation where the bbc political editor had to have um mm. uh, had a, a bodyguard attending the labor party conference and she's I even mean, been trolled online by labor supporters scandalous and 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 the attacks online um and the physical intimidation of journalists um uh, is at a level at the moment in this country that i've never seen before in in, in working in journalism for you know 35 years uh, so we shouldn't be complacent uh, about are it. we complacent uh, well, I think you're right to say that we generally feel that we conduct our politics in a sort of decent, decent way here. But we have to be on our guard all the time. And I, and I must put my hand up. I mean, the the Labour government that I worked for under Tony Blair, uh, and uh, you know, Michael was there uh, when 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 Blair was in, in in Northern Ireland for the for the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. You know, we waged a war on the press. Now it wasn't a physical war, but Alistair Campbell, my old boss, spent most of his time uh, deflecting criticism of the government onto criticism of the press and he and he described it as a war on the press okay then let's move on to our final part of the program well, that was Alessandro Mahmoud singing his way to glory at Italy's San Remo Song Festival. With this victory, the 27-year-old who performs under the stage name Mahmoud will represent his country in May's Eurovision Song Contest. However, his success has not been welcomed by Italy's right-wing Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini, who criticised the jury for awarding him the prize. For Salvini, it's not the song that's the problem, but the singer who has an Italian mother and an Egyptian father. So, before we talk about that, I mean, from that little burst of the song, what do you think of it? Yes. What do you think of his voice? <laughs> I don't know, his voice is all right. It sounded a pretty, pretty dreary song. Pretty dreary song. But then, the bar for success at Eurovision, which I have to admit, I religiously watch every year for reasons that uh, I, I can't begin to explain. Do you throw a Eurovision party? I, I do throw Eurovision parties occasionally, yes. Mainly to take the mickey out of the proceedings and to get very drunk and, 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 and uh, not take it too seriously. But as I say, the, the, the bar for musical talent in Eurovision is pretty low um, and uh, you know that one I'm sure will um, get the votes it deserves. But the interesting thing as well our own which is pretty <laughs> dreadful isn't it? <laughs> I haven't heard it. I haven't heard the UK's version but anyway but I mean Michael the Eurovision Song Contest it, it, it has it, it can't avoid the politics it's always going to be there like it or not but really Salvini's outburst that takes it to a, to a different level altogether I mean it, it is frankly racist. No it's he is frankly racist I mean that's the point the and he He's close friends with Steve Bannon. 
Um, he'll he'll <laughs> no, let hasn't you know. Expressed his opinions about the song as yet. <laughs> no, I, I I don't think it's his style. Um, Italian pop music. Are you kidding me? Doesn't matter who's singing it. It's bad. Um, <laughs> I, I go you're, to, you're upsetting our Italian listeners. Hey, now, wait a second. I, I go I go to Italy for holiday whenever I have a few extra quid in my pocket. But I don't. I never appreciate sitting in a bar enjoying a drink and listening to Italian pop music coming through. But look, Salvini has a, is an ethno nationalist. You know, this is a he would regard this guy as mixed race, and he's just going to be completely rude about it. Um, Salvini would probably prefer Berlusconi to, to <laughs> represent Italy. You know, I mean, Berlusconi has a voice. He can sing. Yeah, because he started off as a crooner on, on ships, on, on wasn't he? Ships. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> send Silvio to, to the Eurovision contest. Oh, I think he's missed the boat on that. But I mean, look, we live in an age of conspiracy theories. There is one theory, perhaps, that maybe Salvini did it deliberately to boost Mahmoud's chances of winning. I mean, we all remember the bearded lady from Austria. There was a lot of controversy about her and she went on to win. So it <laughs> yeah, would be a and, similar dynamic. <laughs> and and, and uh, the Eurovision Song Contest is in Tel Aviv this year. And the last time, not the last time, but Israel won with a transvestite um, uh, singer, uh, Dana International, over 10 over ten years ago. Very controversial within Israel. And I understand... I like that song, actually. Hot news. It's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> Hot news. And that uh, I, I believe the, the Israelis are choosing their, um, their entry... Uh, this evening, um, and the hot favourite to win will be very controversial herself because she is Jewish but mimics uh, Arab um, uh, styles and, and, and culture. So, um, but I mean, I just think that Eurovision is a piece of flam and we shouldn't treat it too seriously. And the way in which it gets dragged into politics sometimes, I think, is, 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 is regrettable and gives it far more credit than it deserves. Although I have to say the last time that the UK won the Eurovision Song Contest was under Tony Blair. We've never won since. Oh, I, rest my, <laughs> you I, rest, your case. I rest my case. Well, I, I, re- I reckon... Katrina, Katrina in the Katrina ways. Katrina in the ways. I mean, I reckon, because I'm, I'm a bit of a sceptic here, that we will get Neil Poin because it will be the EU's way of taking its revenge on the UK for Brexit. That's that's just my take but look guys thank you so much because we've now come to the end of today's show Michael Goldfarb and Lance Price thank you for joining us here at Midori House if you're wonderful insightful analysis particularly about Eurovision Lance will be round to your place in May for that party today's show was produced by Marcus Hippie it was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Ravulli our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett more music is coming up next than at 1900 hours. It's this week's premiere of Monocle on Design, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, that is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>